It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the news that Ukraine has made limited gains around Bakhmut, a freight train derails in occupied Crimea, and we comment on videos emerging from the battlefront of Ukrainian tank tactics. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday. The 18th of May, one year and 83 days since a full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, foreign reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, and former tank commander and Telegraph contributor Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David, and welcome back to our listeners around the world. Yes, lots happening in the military sphere. According to the Ukrainian military, their air defences successfully shot down 29 out of 30 Russian cruise missiles in overnight attacks. The strikes targeted various areas, including Kyiv, the southern city of Odessa, and the central Vinistitia region. Officials claim that one person lost their life and that two others were injured in the Odessa strikes. However, in Kyiv, reportedly all the cruise missiles were intercepted and neutralised by the air defences. That's been reported by the head of the capital's military administration. Despite the effective defence, falling debris caused two fires in the city, although no casualties were reported. Now, as ever in these reports, we can't independently verify them immediately. But anecdotally, from speaking to people on the ground this morning, it does seem that as with the major missile attack on Monday, that the Ukrainian air defences were indeed successful. Now, the Secretary of the National Security and Defence Council of Ukraine has emphasised that Kyiv 
remains Putin's relentless and unachievable target. That's a quote and points out the symbolic significance of the capital being attacked by Russian missiles, albeit obviously not in the way that Putin intended, given that he's been advertising, bigging up these hypersonic missiles, which have just not proved capable in any way of proving as devastating as he as he hoped. And I'll come to some of the ramifications of that for the scientists involved in a moment. But first of all, in Bakhmut, the Institute for the Study of War, the American-based think tank, are reporting limited Ukrainian counterattacks yesterday. Ukrainian forces are reportedly advancing on Bakhmut's flanks with claims of up to 500 metres gained in the past day. The Russian Ministry of Defence has acknowledged these counterattacks but claims marginal advances by Russian airborne forces. Interestingly, the Wagner Group financier Yegevny Bogosian, our old friend, denies these claims, surprise, surprise, and criticises the portrayal as a retreat from their territorial gains. Despite the limited nature of the Ukrainian counterattack, some analysts are suggesting this morning that Russian forces are now having to react quite extensively to Ukrainian actions, indicating a loss of initiative in the Bakhmut area. Turning to the southern front, the head of the Ukrainian southern forces are urging people to disregard any reports of Ukrainian offensive activities in the Herzon direction due to what they call challenging environmental and geographical constraints, particularly the wet width of the Dnipro River, which they say are hindering Ukrainian offensive operations. Interestingly, though, uh, Ukrainian Security Services Colonel Roman Kostensko has added that Ukrainian forces managed to push Russian forces back from islands near Hezon City, but described the islands as having poor terrain, lack of trenches, limited shelter and constantly wet ground. So there is some activity happening around there, but perhaps not as significant as some other outlets have been playing up. Now, another major military story this morning is that rail traffic between Simferopol and Sevastopol, two major cities in Crimea, of course, have been suspended after a freight train carrying grain derailed, according to the region's Russia-installed leader. Now, Crimean railways have attributed the derailment to interference by outsiders. Now, I think we can read a lot into that. So certain Kremlin-aligned telegram channels with ties to Russian security services have reported that there was an explosion on this railway line and state that approximately 50 metres of track was damaged and eight cars derailed. And there have been some photographs that I've seen this morning of this derailment. They're quite striking, to put it mildly. And so there's quite a lot of anger over this. Obviously, there were similar incidents earlier in the month in Bryansk region. Kiev didn't claim responsibility for those or for this. But I think we can read into this that it does seem to be some kind of partisan or special forces activity. But I imagine that Don will have some more thoughts on that tomorrow. But lastly, there are already signs of fallout from the failed missile strikes on Kiev, as I say. And there's an interesting story this. So Russian scientists who are reporting who are reportedly working on the hypersonic missile program have expressed 
concerns to the Kremlin openly about the potential collapse of their research due to the detention of their colleagues on charges of treason by the security services. So quite extraordinary in and of itself this, that they've published this open letter emphasising they can't continue their work if the arrests continue at their Siberian institutes. So it highlights several prominent scientists involved in the missile programme that they say have already been imprisoned and charged with treason in the past 10 months. And so I think we can read into this that they're basically trying to deflect blame. But also, if these arrests are true, and we believe that they are, that all is not happy within the missile programme and that with these failures comes effective imprisonment. And so they're clearly one working under intense pressure. And it's no doubt that as a consequence of the failures on Monday, that there are severe legal consequences for this in these researchers. In all of this raises doubts about Russia's ability to develop the advanced weaponry required for the conflict in Ukraine. And as I say, the fiasco of these much vaunted hypersonic missiles has wider ramifications. It's leading to notable comment this morning as people are saying, you know, and asking whether this really shows that Russia's nuclear arsenal itself is, is not up to up to muster, would, whether we would actually be able to deploy these weapons at all. And I know we make this point often, but it's worth remembering that prior to this war, many in the West saw Russia as a preeminent military power with a capable land army, cutting edge missile technology and one of the world's largest nuclear arsenals. The first two pillars of that reputation have now largely collapsed. And the question, to me at least, seems to be now how many more of these myths are going to be punctured before this war is over? Thank you very much, Francis. And I'm sure on that point about Russia's nuclear arsenal, we'll have um, a lot more from Hamish de Breton Gordon later. First, can we go to Genevieve Hall Allen? Uh, Genevieve, you talked to us yesterday about a story from the Finnish foreign ministry operating in Russia. There have been some up- updates there. Can you talk us through them? Hi, David. Yes. So yesterday I spoke a little bit about how Finland's foreign ministry had said that its bank accounts for its Moscow embassy and its St. Petersburg consulate, its bank accounts had been frozen and it hadn't received any official explanation as to why this had occurred. So they have now received one. The Kremlin responded to these statements made by the Finnish Foreign Ministry on Wednesday and said that this freezing was a response to what it called the unfriendly acts of the collective West, including Finland. So Mr Peskov, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, said... This is not an initiative on the Russian side. We are reacting to a situation created by the authorities of a number of countries of the collective West, including, to our regret, Finland. He continued, we cannot and will not leave unfriendly actions unanswered. Now, as as we said yesterday, obviously Finland became the latest member of NATO in April when it formally joined the alliance. And this is the same month that this freeze on the embassy bank accounts took place. Perhaps this, you know, joining of NATO is is the sign to the Kremlin that, that Finland has further become part of this collective West. Mr. Harvesto said that the Russian decision was likely related to EU sanctions linked to the conflict in Ukraine and that other EU countries have experienced similar problems with payment transactions in Russia. Thanks, Genevieve. One diplomatic story that's really dominated our updates for the past month has been the Black Sea grain deal. 
questions over whether it would be extended and under what potential new rules. There is a, a major update here. Talk to us about it. Yes, so Francis had said that he would be coming back today with an update on the on the Black Sea grain deal, um, which he'd been covering extensively for, for the podcast. Everyone on the podcast has been covering it, but it's going to be coming from me today. And indeed, as we expected, the Black Sea grain deal has been extended, this time for another two months. The extension was agreed yesterday, the day before Russia could have quit the pact. It had been threatening to walk away from the deal over obstacles to its own exports. But the extension was announced by Turkish President Erdogan in a televised speech on Wednesday and then later confirmed by Russia, Ukraine and the United Nations. Um, so a UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez hailed this as good news for the world and he tweeted, I welcome the confirmation by the Russian Federation to continue its participation in the Black Sea Initiative for another 60 days. He added, even in the darkest hours, there is always a beacon of hope and an opportunity to find solutions that benefit everyone. Now, as a result, global wheat prices have continued to fall as the extension has eased concerns over global supplies. But there are, of course, questions about what exactly has been agreed and what Ru- Russia has, has received, if anything, in, in exchange for agreeing to this extension. Today, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, said that they had received a, what he described a qualified result in negotiations over the easing of some restrictions. In particular, Mr Peskov said, regarding guarantees for Roselhor's bank, various options are being explored that would be equivalent to reversing its exclusion from the SWIFT payment system. So Roselhor's is the state agricultural bank and easing curbs on international payments for it was one of the key obstacles that Russia had wanted to see removed. Mr Peskov said, there are certain hopes on the basis of the negotiations which have taken place so far. So that's where we're at and where the Black Sea grain deal is at. There is this extension, not for very long. And it seems that Russia is saying that it wants to see more progress over the course of the next couple of months. Mr Peskov said, it is very important important to understand that the fate of the deal is still in the hands of those with whom the UN must agree on the Russian part of the deal. A certain part of the way has been travelled. There are results, but not definitive ones. We will try to solve this problem definitively within these 60 days. Thanks, Genevieve. One more story, which would be really great to hear from you, is on some movement in Moldova, obviously a, a country to the south and to the west of, of Ukraine. We've brought our listeners quite a few updates from Moldova over the course of the last year and a bit. This is quite. This feels like quite an interesting one. Yes, so the Moldovan president, Maya Sandu, has said that Moldova hopes for a decision on whether it can start negotiations to become a member of the European Union in the next months, as it wants membership, as she says, as soon as possible, as protection against a threat from Russia. So this is from an interview with AFP, the news agency. Ms Sandu said, We do believe that Russia will continue to be a big source of instability for the years to come, and we need to protect ourselves. And she was speaking to AFP at the sidelines of the Council of Europe summit in Iceland, which Francis spoke a bit about yesterday. 
So the population of Moldova, 2.6 million people. Country is between Ukraine and Romania, which is an EU member. And polling is suggesting that Moldovans are overwhelmingly behind joining the European Union. And Moldova has had to contend with a Russian military presence close to home over recent years, with a small number of Russian troops stationed in the country's breakaway region of Transnistria. Misandu told AFP... Of course, nothing compares to what is happening in Ukraine, but we see the risks and we do believe that we can save our democracy only as part of the EU. She added that the war in Ukraine had firmed up the prospect of EU membership for Ukraine and and Moldova and said, we do believe this is a realistic project for us and we are looking forward to seeing this happening as soon as possible. Now, also today, the country's prime minister told a security conference in Bucharest that the country is no longer using Russian natural gas or electricity after cutting its dependence since the Ukraine war began. They said, if at the start of the war, 100% of energy consumed in Moldova originated in Russia, today Moldova can exist with absolutely no natural gas or electricity from Russia, adding that the country is and I quote, integrated in the European energy network, both technically and commercially. This is all coming ahead of Moldova hosting its first major summit of wider Europe on the 1st of June. It's to host the European Political Community, a forum created last year, which brings together leaders of all 27 countries with 20 neighbours of the bloc. So it seems that there are you know, quite a few noises or, or movements coming out of Moldova and its relationship with Europe and the EU. Thanks very much for that, uh, Genevieve. Francis, can I come back to you? Um, that was a fascinating update about the grain deal. I believe you have more thoughts. Yes, I mean, Genevieve sums it up brilliantly in terms of where we are. And I just wanted to say that I think this core question remains that Genevieve's touched on there about what exactly was agreed. Is it just a continuation of the deal as we understood it? Or have there been some concessions granted to Russia? That is the key question. And it is too early to say, I think, but it is interesting to see that Peskov is talking around about the there potentially being some movement on payments, because if they've got something out of this, then of course that was Russia's major intention all along, I think with holding on for so long going down to the wire as it were, regarding the grain deal because they wanted to get some some kind of concessions this time on something so I think we may have more on that uh, next week the more that we're able to look into it, but the story that I wanted to touch on here is another one about China and I was talking last week about China's special envoy making a trip around Europe. Well, he has arrived now and he has met with Ukraine's foreign minister and has also had a conversation with President Zelensky. Now, we're already getting lines out of the meeting that took place. Interestingly, Ukraine very, very keen to emphasise that its government will not accept any proposal to end Russia's invasion that involves territorial loss or freezing of the conflict. So very consistent lines out of Ukraine. Seems the discussion aimed to find ways to stop Russian aggression and restore a stable peace based on respect for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. That's according to the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry. And yet we're not hearing any more about the conversation that took place with President Zelensky. They've decided not to publish the details of that. However, both countries expressed their intentions to continue working together. So that meeting has now concluded, seemingly without real 
anything tangible coming out of it apart from these sort of predictable statements of, 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 of intent. No shocks there. We expected that. I, I don't see the ground shifting in any profound way as a result of this. I think really the medium is the most important message, which is China trying to position itself as a mediator between Ukraine and Russia, despite, of course, very pronounced doubts about its own neutrality on the conflict. But we, I think we can expect some more interesting things to come out later of this special envoy. So he's going to go to Russia, Poland, France and Germany with a visit to Brussels, potentially added. Now, interesting choices, as I discussed last week, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see some photo ops and some extended conversations taking place off the back of that. Of course, China's close relationship with Putin and its stance on territorial sovereignty further complicate this situation. Experts are predicting that reaching a peace agreement will be immensely challenging as Russia seeks Ukraine's acknowledgement of its annexation of Crimea and other disputed provinces, whereas Kyiv refuses to engage with Moscow unless it withdraws from those occupied territories. And until that fundamentally changes, most likely in the military sphere, but not inconceivably in the political one, then I cannot foresee there being any movement in these kind of overtures being made by the Chinese. Now, What's very interesting, of course, is that we've got the Hiroshima summit starting tomorrow. That's the next meeting of the G7. And I'm expecting there to be considerable conversation about China at that and, of course, the war in Ukraine. So I think we can expect that next week there'll be a lot of interesting insights on the shifting geopolitical sounds coming out of that summit. And I think the location of it is very interesting as well. Japan and the pivot to the Pacific is becoming increasingly important as China, of course, begins to mobilise more as a consequence, increasing tensions around Taiwan, but also Japan's role in Ukraine. Very interesting. Interestingly, a line coming out of Japan today that they're going to take some Ukrainian injured soldiers and treat them in Japan. Japan. So Japan is very, very aware, I think, of the increasing tensions as a consequence much wider around the world that the war in Ukraine has triggered. And so I think, as I say, expect next week and Hiroshima to be a very big subject indeed. Thank you very much, Francis. And thank you as well, Genevieve Hull, Alan, for your updates too. Hamish to Blackman Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, there's an awful lot to say today, I think. I wonder if you would start by just adding your thoughts to that of Francis's earlier, who talked about the three pillars of what the West expected from the Russian military, the armed forces, the missile program, and the nuclear forces. What are your thoughts there? Well, there are a number of things that, that, that are, I would like to discuss on that, and uh, really in, in two areas. First of all is, is Putin himself and his command style. Second, on the armoured forces. And thirdly, on the nuclear piece that, that maybe we'll We'll come to the end. But uh, thank you very much for having me on and, and deputising for Dom, who said he was off, I think, drinking Guinness. I'm not sure what that's a euphemism for, but it sounds great. But I, I've been walking the corridors in, ta- in London and other places recently, trying to get the essence of Putin as the leader of the man. And uh, somebody who really knows probably more than anybody else pointed me in the direction of an article in The New Yorker this week, um, which I did tweet earlier, and I'll, I'll tweet later. It's called The Vanishing Acts of Vladimir Putin by Joshua Yaffa. And it goes on, one, one of the seeming paradoxes of the Russian president is the degree to which he is at once a unitary micromanager 
and an absent, aloof and often indecisive leader. And it sort of goes back to the, the great Christmas speech that Putin always gives in December. Three or four hours of, of what he's going to do, his goals and how marvellous he is. Of course, that didn't happen last Christmas. Christmas 22 didn't happen in January. It eventually happened in February and it was it was less than an hour and it said virtually nothing. And it said absolutely nothing about Ukraine, which is rather strange. And his paradox is as a micromanager and an aloof and indecisive leader, what one of the examples they give is the fact that he's been appointing middle managers at Gazprom, the oil and gas area. And we know that he dives right into the sort of tactical level, the lowest levels in the military. And he's a spy. He probably knows very little about um, fighting on, on the front line. He goes on to say he has a tendency to hoard authority, but shirk responsibility. And a completely miscut guided confidence in the Russian military, particularly the Russian army. You know, the winter offensive has been an absolute failure and tens of thousands of Russian troops have died. In fact, yesterday, the Ukrainian government said that 200,000 Russian soldiers had died thus far in the war, which is a massive figure. And I wrote about this earlier on in the week in the, in the paper, saying that the Ukrainian figures are probably right. I mean, unbelievable. Then goes on to talk about the drone attack. And I know we've covered that in detail. And I won't, I, I won't say anything except for the fact that this was a massive disaster for Putin. I'll just take a breath there before I go on to talk about what I've noticed recently about the tank operations, if anybody has any comeback. Well, just very, very quickly, let's go to Francis. As you said, this is a quote from an analyst, I believe, Hamish. Everyone is looking to the Kremlin and waiting for some plans, explanations, movements, and then nothing happens. Francis, what do you make of this? It's a fascinating article, we must say, in The New Yorker. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes um, if people want to read it afterwards by Joshua Yaffa. What would you add to that, Francis, from what Hamish has summarised? Well, it's the old Soviet model in, in place, really, I think, still, where you see that complete inactivity at the very top that are an immobilising influence that as people are waiting, looking up for some kind of direction. There's none of that flexibility that means that a state can function Quick to, quickly and effectively and adaptively in fast-changing circumstances. And we talked about that profoundly in the military context last week. That inability for the Russian army to adapt and evolve to changing circumstances has proved fatal in many, many areas. But it's the same problem that autocracies have in their political context too. And you see this numerous examples in Soviet history where there have been instances where they've been desperately waiting for there to be some kind of steer for from the top and the inability of the uh, political hierarchy to function independently of that has led to catastrophic decisions, most famously, of course, with the collapse of the Berlin Wall. It was the inability of certain officials to get clarity from the top brass on certain fundamental questions that meant that they sort of had to, on the on the hoof, come up with alternatives. And it led to the opening of the uh, checkpoints in Berlin and very quickly the avalanche of the wall coming, crashing down almost within a 24-hour period. And love to do an interview with Daniel Johnson, who is the Telegraph journalist that asked the fatal question of that bureaucrat who uh, ultimately then gave the answer that led to the crowds to come out to and uh, and and essentially bring the wall down because it's a fascinating story and one that he's written about many times in the past. So what we're seeing here, David, I think, is, as I say, 
one of the most remarkable things about this war for me is that you're not just seeing a, a democracy up against an autocracy. You're seeing, in a sense, the worst and the best attributes of both of those systems working successfully or unsuccessfully in both of those countries. And so with you, what you see with Ukraine, a democratic country that is fighting for its life, you see the democratic spirit in how it operates and the adaptability, maneuverability, the flexibility of the system, both on the ground at the soldier level and in the political context that has proven far, far more effective against Putin's creaking Soviet bureaucratic regime, something that filters all the way down, as I say, to the armed forces. And I think it's one of these pillars that ultimately will prove decisive in this war, that inability to adapt to fast changing circumstances. It's just very, very hard to see how the Russian military and political system will be able to catch up that lost ground. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Well, Francis, you mentioned there the flexibility and the learning learning ability of the Ukrainian troops. There's been an awful lot of video footage coming out around some of these localised counterattacks in Bakhmut. Hamish, you've been, as a former tank commander, you've been watching the uh, the movements of the Ukrainian tanks and how they're working with the infantry. Can you explain to us what you've seen and uh, your interpretation of that? I find it very interesting looking at some of the tank action around Bakhmut recently. And, um, I, you know, as a tank commander, I'm, I'm really impressed. Um, I'll post the video again later. But th- there's one where a, a tank is operating with infantry on the ground and it moves forward into a position, fires around and then very quickly moves back and moves to another position. It's, it's what we call jockeying for position. Because once you, once you fire a tank, and you'll see it on the video, you, you get a massive, there is a massive explosion, lots of dust and everything else. And anybody, obser- anybody any enemy observing that will see it. And if you stay in that position, it's very easy to then knock that tank out. But if you move, and you have to move a reasonable distance, because the, the enemy will be looking at that tank through what we call a sight picture. So they'll be looking through their own tank site or a site for an anti-tank guided weapon. And it covers, say, 100 metres in, in front. So when you jockey a move, you need to move at least that distance so you're out of it and then you can fire again. And that's what this tank is doing. It's firing. It's got infantry protecting around it. It's then moving. And to me, that's, that shows some really skilled sort of tank warfare. The other thing I noticed about the tank, and have a, have a good look at it, you know, it, it seems to be in really good order. All the sort of, all the bits, it hasn't got bits and pieces hanging off it like some sort of, you know, old Tinker's truck or whatever. It, everything looks well stowed. It looks in good order. So to me, that is a really well-trained, well-motivated crew. And it also shows what we've discussed many times for this combined arms manoeuvre. What the Russians have failed to be able to do is combined arms manoeuvre. Their tanks are static. Therefore, once you acquire them, that's fine them. You can then hit them. But what the Ukrainians are doing are using their infantry to protect the tanks, using the artillery in a sort of suppressive way, keeping people's heads down so that they can move around. So in that little sort of one minute clip of video, to me, that that gives that makes me feel that the um, Ukrainian tank crews working with the infantry and artillery are really over it. And we discussed the other day, of course, you know, the, the, the great counteroffensive where we're expecting mass tanks with infantry and artillery. We know they have them. We know very little about them. 
operational security is great. But if it's any, if if the demonstration of the tank crews in Bakhmut is anything to go by, um, I'm expecting a really effective combined arms counteroffensive whenever it is uh, by the troops. And of course, added to that, I mean, the tank we're seeing there on the ground is a sort of T-72, I think, you know, all Soviet tanks. But um, you, you put a Challenger or a Leopard 2 in that position and you've got a much bigger bang, more accurate. So, again, with those leading the counteroffensive, you know, what one is, one is confident. And all we've talked about the Russian military, that inability to act, inability to move, once they've got through that defensive line, I think they should be able to move very quickly, very rapidly and, and cover a lot of ground. We'll come to Francis Donnelly in one minute. But Hamish, very quickly, um, this must be to some extent quite moving for you. I mean, we know you, you live very near some of the tank training grounds and you'll have heard some of... I mean, do you think what you're seeing in these clips is potentially uh, evidence of the training that has taken place in, in the United Kingdom and, and across Europe? I'm sure. It is. I mean, first of all, I think we, we've always said, and I've certainly said, I've been very impressed by the Ukrainian military, their tankers, their, their artillery rise and all the rest of it. Highly motivated, highly professional. But certainly, you know, when I was teaching young Dominic Nichols to be a tank commander many years ago, we were doing exactly that. And it does, you know, it, it it's almost straight out of the, the, the sort of book, yeah, it's not new to me. It's what tankers have been doing always. But, you know, a, a tank is a very capable weapon if it's used correctly, but it is also a sitting duck if it's not. And those operations give me, you know, real solace that they know what they're doing. Whether they learnt those skills in Bovington, just down the road from here, or in Grafenwehr in Germany, or Drosky Pomoski in Poland, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's classic NATO tank operations. So, um, yeah, gives me a lot of confidence. Thank you very much, Hamish. Um, I wish I could see Don Nichols's face as he's sipping on some Guinness, as he hears himself described as young Don Nichols learning how to drive and fire with tanks. So thank you, Hamish, for that. Francis, do you want to come in and answer that? Well, I just wanted to come back to this question of flexibility and adaptability and its role, because I think there's something of a well, something of a false narrative that we've discussed many times, which is that autocracies like Russia, particularly Russia because of its enormous size, are able to summon more resources and become stronger the longer that a war goes on. And there may be some evidence for that in the Soviet case. But I think that if you're looking at history in the broad brush in the 20th century, then it's far more often, far more common, that autocracies start wars well and end them very badly. And so that, of course, was true of the German army in the Second World War, true of the Japanese as well in the Pacific theatre. I mean, most famously, they launched uh, Pearl Harbour and had a really, you know, solid idea of exactly what they wanted to do with that operation, but had no end game for the rest of the war. And so whilst, you know, they sort of had had delivered a, a, a major blow, not the blow that they anticipated. They hoped to destroy all of the aircraft carriers, but not did not succeed in that. But nonetheless, Pearl Harbor was a huge defeat in many ways for the American Navy. But fundamentally, 
you, one could argue, that, and this was something that even the Japanese generals were aware of, that they'd awoken the sleeping dragon and it was only a matter of time before they themselves would be beaten back by, by the sheer scale of, of America and its adaptability once it had been mobilised and its flexibility conjured from its sort of democratic way of operating in its capitalistic system. And that's also worth driving home here, that capitalism is also integral to this in the way that it is able to adapt and lead to economies being flexible in times of great change. But so you've got that, those examples there of where, you know, wars and autocracies really believe that they have advantages on their side in the long term quite often because, you know, democracies have to go through democratic cycles very often, particularly if a war is, is prolonged. Of course, that happened in America with Roosevelt and Hitler was dependent. He was really hoping that uh, Roosevelt might lose that election. And uh, obviously when he didn't, it came as a blow. But when Roosevelt died, Hitler was absolutely jubilant. He thought that this was the great deliverance like Frederick the Great had had and that this meant that America would pull out or that at the very least that there would be some negotiation. We obviously know that that wasn't what happened. But uh, nonetheless, you know, this is a very interesting area of, of history that when you actually think about it and look at the examples of the 20th century, more often than not, countries that autocracies are able to start well because they're able to build up their forces and they're able to strike decisively in a way that democracies, by their very more hesitant nature, are not able to do. But when push comes to shove over a prolonged period of time, it's more often the case that uh, that autocracies are are beaten back by more flexible and adaptive systems. And as I say, we are seeing that in Ukraine. And it reminds me of the conversation I had with Dr. Mike Martin only, what was it, I think either early, early last week or the end of the week before, where he really tried to drive home this point. And I asked him, you know, what about this argument that autocracies become stronger? And he was saying, well... There may be a few examples from history, but more often than not, if you look at the core things that a nation needs to have or a country needs to have or a union needs to have in order to fight effectively, Russia does not have any of those things at present. And it is really reliant on holding on and keeping this war frozen until some kind of political shift occurs, whether that be in the United States or whether that be in the European context. And so in many ways, it's going to be up to the West collectively to determine whether it is going to counteract Putin's long-term strategy in the political sphere, which is basically waiting for the West to bring first, or as America and as Britain and as Europe has been saying, that we are not going to look away from Ukraine and that we'll continue to support it for as long as it takes. Francis, without wanting to labour the historical point too much, I just wonder how that theory works if you approach the example of the Soviet Union, which of course started World War II um, in an atrocious position during Operation Barbarossa, losing hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and ends the war in a position total triumph on the Eastern Front. I'm not, not trying to pick at it too much, but it seems like, it seems like an obvious counterexample, Nick. Well, I think this ar- argument is slightly, because I've really been really reflecting deeply on this. And I know at times I've put forward that very argument, David, trying to sort of reflect on that point. But I do think that we're looking at a very, very different war here. I mean, when the Soviet Union was fighting in the Second World War, it had been invaded, as you say, by Operation Barbarossa in 1941. And it was facing, I should say, by the way, that a lot of the fighting on the Eastern Front was actually in Ukraine. So that's worth bearing in mind here. 
here that, that and I'll come back to that in a moment when I'm talking my final thoughts. But this was a war that was fundamentally existential in the sense that the German army was trying to initially seize Moscow, obviously Stalingrad later when it shifted more to the oil fields in the south. And it was, as I say, fighting for its life and was able to mobilise the entirety of the people of the country in order to fight because it had the resources at its, as its disposal. It had the power in which to enforce people to do that. But also people could believe that they were, you know, that this was, that it was a war that they should be fighting because it looked like they were going to be conquered by the West, by the Germans, by the great enemy, by the Hun, which had, of course, had, had been the threat in the First World War. So it's much, much easier to mobilise those kind of resources and, and scale up to a total war that in, in that sort of Second World War context that it is in this one, which, you know, I just, so what I'm saying really, David, is that if Putin tried to make this, and of course he has in a sense tried to make this, a war on the existential scale of the Second World War, he has not succeeded in making people want to fight for it and be mobilised. And so I think he has fundamentally failed in that and would fail in that. And I think he knows it. And I think that as a consequence of that, he has had to change strategy. The mobilisations have not been a tremendous success. And even in the Soviet context, they weren't a tremendous success either. I mean, if you read the accounts, as I have, by German generals fighting on the Eastern Front, they're constantly talking about the fact that the only reason they are, fight, they are losing the battles is because of the lack of winter gear that they have, the lack of ammunition that they had. And they were not really, they argue, losing because of the strategic adaptability of the Soviets or sort of any great material advantage necessarily. What it was, was just the grinding down of resources over a prolonged period of time. And it was a very, very prolonged period of time. And the willingness of the Russians to just throw millions, and I mean millions, of soldiers at the Germans to the extent that they were eventually forced to capitulate. And we're not going to see that in Ukraine. It is not in Putin's power to conjure millions of soldiers. And so I, I think, as I say, whilst I'm very, very aware that I in many ways am disputing a point that I was positing some months ago, I've thought a lot about it. And I think that we're looking at a very, very different context here. And whilst it's true that, of course, Russia will be able to bring more ammunition to bear and more resources over a prolonged period because it's got a lot of factories it can use, it's not going to change the fundamentals and it's not going to be able to use that manpower question, I don't think in a way that is profoundly decisive and that has parallels with the Second World War. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Dernley, do either of you have any final thoughts? Uh, Hamish to Bretton Gordon? Yeah, what I'd like to conclude with is on the nuclear issue. And we, uh, we touched on this at the very beginning of the podcast. I think one of the very positive things to come out of Ukraine conflict so far is that the nuclear bubble has been completely burst. I gave a talk last night for people across the Middle East. It was a charity talk to raise money for Ukrainian medical charities, and, and it raised a lot of money, which, which was great. But the theme of the talk was really security in the Middle East and how the conflict in Ukraine would affect the Middle East. And a lot of people are very concerned on the nuclear issue. 
And I said, I don't want to sound like Michael Fish. And anybody who, who was born after 1986, just a quick history lesson. Michael Fish was the BBC weatherman who said uh, rumours of a hurricane coming to the UK are absolute rubbish. The next day we had the biggest hurricane that uh, Britain's ever had. But not wanting to sound like Michael Fish, I think the nuclear issue, the nuclear conundrum, whatever you like to call it, has been completely deflated by what's happening in, in Russia. And we've discussed it before, so I won't go over old ground, but Putin used nuclear threat to keep NATO out, and it's done the exact opposite. I think more recently, as discussed earlier, with the fact that the hypersonic missiles have been knocked out so easily, and though they are going to be a key part of Putin's uh, potentially strategic and tactical nuclear arsenal, are now not really viable. We've also heard reports that ballistic missiles have also been taken out by Ukrainian air defence, you know, which is predominantly sort of you know, mainly Western air defence. So when you put that together and, and also what people are telling me that it's highly unlikely that those Russian soldiers manning some of the tactical nuclear weapons are actually going to press the red button, you then realise, in my piece you know, I take it that Putin's nuclear arsenal is null and void. And I think it sends a really strong message around the world, especially as the G7 are meeting in Hiroshima today. Um, hopefully, non-proliferation will be on the agenda because, you know, when Russia withdrew from the non-proliferation treaty, we've seen what's happening in Iran and North Korea. It's sort of slightly got out of hand. But, the, but on the other side of it, you know, I'm sort of, I would say to the president of Iran, you know, don't waste your time and effort on nuclear because it, it really doesn't work. It's kept the peace for 80 years. And when it's been threatened, it's just something that is unusable. So to me, that is a really, it's a positive thing. And um, hopefully it's something that one can worry less about uh, in the future and I expect the rest of the conflict in Ukraine and hope it will be entirely conventional and over as soon as possible. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Hamish. It's always good to hear your thoughts and opinions. And we are, I think, all of us all here for any more stories you do have of young Dom Nichols, uh, the trainee tank commander. Thank you very much, Hamish. Francis, would you like the very final thoughts? Well, thanks, David. I've spoken quite a lot about the Second World War today, which we didn't actually plan, but it's, it's made me think of a couple of things. Just one point on the subject I was talking about earlier. I don't want you to suggest that in any way loads of uh, or all Soviet soldiers who are fighting for the USSR against the Nazis were actually particularly uh, keen on doing so and were necessarily fighting for the Russian cause. I actually think that if one looks at the, some of the reactions from the initial German invasion in the West, uh, on the Western Front, uh, uh, or I suppose it would be the Eastern Front, but I mean on the Western Front of that war from Russia's perspective, many, many greeted the Germans as liberators. And I think that's a really important point to remember here, that the Soviet Union was considered an oppressor in many, many places, including even within Russian territory itself. And it's, so there is a school of thought that thinks that if actually Hitler had not treated these people with the 
brutal disdain and horrific atrocities that he did, that there would have been actually enough support within the Soviet Union to topple Stalin. But that's a different point in a discussion for another day. But I just thought I would say that. But since we're talking about the war, there was a video I saw last week of Ukrainian soldiers digging trenches on positions from the Second World War and finding the skeleton of a German soldier. And it seemed to me, well, profoundly tragic and symbolic that a country which has seen so much bloodshed finds itself witnessing yet another devastating conflict following one people said would never be allowed to happen again and in the exact same spot. And as I've said several times before, sometimes the metaphors write themselves And I think that example, it just to me underscores, of course, the interconnectedness of of history. And there's something about the trench itself. You know, it's a a scar on the landscape. And now it's, of course, an open wound again. It's also a poignant reminder that the remnants of past conflicts do endure. That body lay there for decades undiscovered. Somebody whose family never knew where they were buried, a forgotten name on a forgotten memorial somewhere. And that is happening again now, every day on European soil, when we said that that would never be allowed to happen again. Frankly, it shames us all in Europe. And I think it is up now to the international community to really think deeply about the foreign policy mistakes that got us here. And I'm still not completely convinced, David, that those lessons have been learned. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. <laughs>